recently. <laughs> so I'm glad to hear that it's just the, the gray hairs are the ones who are reserved for the program, not for the listeners. It's wonderful to be here with you. I'm especially grateful to have the opportunity to be here in Atlanta and to see some old friends and to make some new ones. Of course, I'm grateful every day to be sober. I'm grateful that Bill and Dr. Bob met 56 years ago in Akron and began this process in which all of us participate now of one alcoholic speaking to another, talking in the language of the heart. I'm grateful for the wonderful opportunity that came my way not because I had any special qualifications or gifts, but just because I happened to be there and be available to become a staff member in our general service office in New York. And it was my privilege and great pleasure to work there for 15 years. Uh, second to getting sober in AA, this is the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Because I learned in a different way about how to carry the message to anyone, anywhere, who reached out for help. And I could spend all morning talking about what we used to do at the General Service Office and what they still do, only I think they do a lot more of it than we were able to do in those days. But I don't think that's why you asked me here. You asked me here to tell my story. And I always welcome opportunities to do this. <coughs> because it is the story of the transforming experience of my life in which I began the process, I hope, of becoming a new and different kind of person because during the years that I drank, I became the kind of person that I never wanted to be, destructive, irrational, unpredictable. When I came to my first AA meeting in September 1957, I had really come to the end of my own resources, and these had been considerable. I lived in a large city, and there's no kind of help that is available in a large city that had not been made available to me. I had used it all up. I had come to the end of my rope. At that time, it would have been impossible for me to believe that the day would ever come when I would be able to look back on those terrible years and accept the fact that for me, they probably were the necessary preparation for the kinds of things that began for me when I came into AA. I just seemed to be one of the people who had to go through that kind of pain and humiliation if I was ever going to be able to engage in any kind of honest self-confrontation. Now, I had had nine years of psychotherapy before I came into AA, and I thought I knew something about self-confrontation. But I had something to learn about self-confrontation along AA lines after I got here because you taught me that what I needed to look at was me. The inventory I needed to take was my own, not my parents, not my husband's, not the people that I thought didn't do right by me. I had to take my own inventory, and this was tough. I couldn't blame somebody else. I had to take responsibility for myself and for what happened to me. And this is a tough process. It's hard for all of us. And it never ends, I don't think. At least it hadn't ended for me. I'm still having to do this. Almost from the beginning, though, I began to learn some things. And I'm still finding I'm having to keep on learning the same things over and over again, sometimes at a little different depth. And one of the first things I learned was that I can't control anything or anyone by my efforts alone, not even myself. I need help. The kind of help that I get from the AA program, from my religion, from my AA friends, and from my family, both inside and outside of AA. 
I learned that I don't have to be a winner. I always thought I had to win or else I couldn't play. I don't have to be a winner. Maybe the only time in my life that I ever really won was the time when I thought I was losing, when I lost the battle with booze. I found out that I have a right to be wrong, that I have a right to make mistakes and to have poor judgment. I didn't know this. It was humiliating to me to be wrong. I could never admit to being wrong because this, this was a failure. I learned here yeah, that's okay. It's really okay to be a human being. It's okay to be a mixture of good and bad, true and false, creative and destructive things. We all are a mixture. Nobody's perfect. And I knew that about everybody else. I just thought I had to be perfect. <laughs> strange, strange things happen here, don't they? I learned that really the only thing that would be really fatal for me would be if I should cease to care and not give a damn. If I should cease to be really concerned and truly committed to the principles of this program and the power greater than myself that I call God, who's seen me through so much this far along my way. Now, appearances to the contrary, perhaps. I never have been the kind of person, and I really am not now, who has a whole lot of confidence in my own ability to accomplish anything worthwhile. But I learned a long time ago that it doesn't really matter whether I have confidence or not. And I quit trying to find it. I quit looking for it. Because if I have confidence in this program, and confidence in the power greater than myself, and if I put my hand, myself in the hands of this program and in the hands of the power greater than myself, it doesn't matter whether I have confidence or not. And that's been a great relief, I'm telling you. God can do for me what I never could do for myself, though it took me a long time to learn that and to believe it. And even now I have to bash my head sometimes against brick walls before I realize what's coming down. Now, I began to drink sort of late in life for an alcoholic. I was 26 years old, married, and the mother of two little girls before drinking was anything but a really occasional experience for me. When my husband went overseas during World War II, I took it big. I always took everything big. And... Uh, I went back to Sewanee, Tennessee, where my mother had a house, and I was going to sit out the war there and wait for my husband to come home. And there were a lot of other women in Sewanee in my same situation. They were there with their children. Their husbands were overseas. We used to get together in the afternoon and turn the children loose in the sand pile and on the swings and in the sliding boards, and we'd sit on the porch and rock. and share our experience, strength, and hope with each other over a few drinks. <laughs> and I thought this was great. Boy, did I ever love this. And I wondered where this civilized custom had been all my life. This had a lot going for it. Now, looking back, of course, I can realize that drinking meant something to me from the very beginning that it did not mean to these other women. It had a kind of importance for me that it did not have for these other people. Uh, I began to associate all experiences of fun and relaxation and pleasure with those times that I drank, and I wasn't really interested in going to parties where there wasn't going to be any drinking going on. And I wasn't interested in any friends who weren't interested in a little drinking. Now, it turned out that I had an enormous capacity and I don't think I would have worried about whether it meant something unusual to me or not, even if I'd known it, as long as I had the famous alcoholic hollow leg. And little did I know how much I was going to need that hollow leg as time went on. When my husband came home from overseas, I had unrealistic expectations. Along with taking everything big, I always had unrealistic expectations, too. And 
I thought this was going to be the answer to all my problems. He'd been overseas with the 5th Marine Division. I'd been at home in the midst of what I found to be a very difficult and unhappy family situation. And somehow communication between us had sort of broken down. And it didn't come right back. And I didn't understand this. Now, he noticed when he came back that I had become a daily drinker. He didn't complain about it. He didn't criticize it. As a matter of fact, he became a daily drinker, too. He didn't drink as many daily drinks as I did, but he became a daily drinker. Now, I was still never got drunk. I was, you know, had this great capacity. After he'd been home for a few months, we moved to New York with the idea of staying one year or two while he got an advanced degree at Columbia University. We ended up staying 35 years. <laughs> kind of an extended stay. He wasn't going to school all that time. <laughs> he wasn't that retarded. <laughs> he began to <laughs> he began change, had not worked any magic either. And things went from bad to worse as far as we were concerned. And I still had never been drunk, but I was drinking more all the time, and I had developed a symptom. I shook all the time. I couldn't sign my name to a check. I couldn't pour a cup of coffee. It was really bad. And so we went to see a doctor who recommended that I should go and have some tests taken. I had the test taken. And it was recommended that I should go and have psychotherapy, and I resented the hell out of this. We had problems, but I had to go and see the shrink. <laughs> now, I'm talking about 1946, and everybody I knew was not having psychotherapy in 1946. <laughs> the only people I knew who were having psychotherapy then were crazy, <laughs> and I didn't think I was crazy. I consented to do this, though, because I really did want to make a success of this marriage, and I wanted to be a good mother to my children, and so I began the psychotherapy. Now, I didn't go to a group. I didn't go once a week. I went four and five times a week, just me, private sessions, and I did this for nine years. Though the man who had recommended that I have this treatment had said, Oh, you know, just a little bit will help you out. It won't take you more than six or eight months, I would think. Little did he know what was going to happen. At any rate, after I had been in therapy for about 18 months of what the doctor considered to be very successful treatment, I went to a party one night, and I drank in the usual manner and in the usual amounts. Only something very peculiar happened to me. I got terribly drunk and I had a blackout and I was not prepared for either one of these things. I did not approve of people getting drunk. <laughs> I thought if you couldn't drink well, that meant like I did, you shouldn't drink at all. You can see I had a long way to fall. I had never even heard of a blackout at this time. I did not know what it was. I had fallen down a flight of stairs and landed on my head on a stone terrace, and I thought I had a concussion, and that's why I didn't remember anything. I was too ashamed of the cause of the concussion to go to a doctor, but I did discuss it with a therapist, and he said all the things I wanted to hear. He told me that this was the kind of thing that could happen to anyone occasionally that in my case he even thought it was a good thing. <laughs> that it meant that the armor was loosening up and that things could get through to me and we would make great progress from then on. He did suggest, however, that I should maybe be extra careful about any drinking I did until we'd solve some difficult problems that we were dealing with. And I agreed with him wholeheartedly. I certainly wanted to be careful. I didn't want anything like that to happen to me again. <laughs> and so I set out to be careful. 
And I tried every way that I could think of to be careful, and I tried every way that anybody could suggest to me to be careful. The trouble was, though I didn't know it, my therapist, I had already crossed whatever that invisible line is that separates those people who can drink successfully from those who can't. Now, it would have been impossible at that time for me to believe that I had been licked by a thing like booze. I just could not have believed it. And I really did believe, and in this I had the support of my family and my friends that knew me well, that if I could only continue with the therapy and get to the bottom of things, that I, I would be okay again and that I would be able to put some order into my life and that in that order drinking would fall into its proper place. We all believed that. My friends used to say, we have to let you find the real you. Boy, did I ever look for the real me. <laughs> I endowed this search for this will-o'-the-wisp known as the real me with every ounce of energy and imagination and resource that I had. And I was young and strong and full of energy, and this was plenty. I worked hard at this. I'm telling you, I worked hard, and I was tired all the time from how hard I worked. <laughs> I continued to look for my answers in psychotherapy. The therapist really cannot be blamed for not helping me with the drinking problem. Because after that first time, I never, ever, in seven and a half more years of psychotherapy, mentioned my drinking to him. Not once. I meant to. I wanted to. I planned to. I would write it down. And on my way to the therapist, I would get in such a state of panic at the thought of having to discuss this with him. I, by the time I showed up in his office, I'd have to make up a story to account for why I was in such a state of mind. I never showed up at his office drunk, but I showed up so hungover I could hardly see my hand in front of my face. He had to know what was going on. But it was non-directive therapy, and I don't believe that's really recommended for alcoholics, if you want to know my opinion. <laughs> Anyhow, I didn't start therapy because of a drinking problem. And I, I, I said later on that that therapy is the thing that caused me to be a drunk. <laughs> I was doing better before I started having the treatment. I looked for my answers in books and study. My husband was at Columbia University and everybody that was hanging around our house was students and intellectuals and they were learning so much and they didn't seem to have the kind of problems I did. And I thought if I could learn a lot and maybe I could apply some of this to my life and I'd be okay too. And I never did find anything that really did fit in with my situation. But I was always running office. If you had an organization and you had a really dirty job you wanted somebody to do, I was your girl. I would say yes to anything. I was trying to buy a little self-respect for myself. I spent hours in fundraising endeavors and all kinds of things for people. I thought if I could find something bigger than I was, that I could throw myself into and really believe in, maybe I wouldn't drink so much. But I didn't find anything like that. I sought for my answers in domesticity and home life. My house hasn't ever been this clean. Because I couldn't clean up anything on the inside, everything outside had to be just so. I even sought for my answers at Ebbets Field in the days when the Dodgers were still in Brooklyn. It's true I was a wild fanatical Dodger fan, and during the summers our children used to go away, spend the summer with my mother in Sewanee, 
And then what few controls there were in my life were gone. And the drinking got worse. And I thought if I had to get on the subway and go to Brooklyn every single day, 77 times a summer, a season at least, and get home from Brooklyn 77 times, maybe I wouldn't drink so much. <laughs> so I asked my family to give me a season ticket to all the Dodger home games for my Christmas present. And they did this for years. They gave me a season ticket to all the Dodger home games. And 77 times every summer I got on the subway and went to Brooklyn. And by the grace of God, I got home from Brooklyn. <laughs> because at Ebbets Field, I discovered beer. <laughs> and the beer vendors discovered me. And they would come around at the end of the seventh inning and automatically put down two or three cans of beer beside me and say, I hope for your sake, lady, the game doesn't go into extra innings because we won't be back. <laughs> I sought my answers in my religion, which I had turned my back on a number of years before. But I had it all wrong. I was busy trying to make sure that the higher power understood what my will for me was, which was that I would be able to drink like I used to be able to drink when I had the hollow leg. It doesn't work like that, and I had to come here to find out that it works the other way around. All the time that I was looking for answers and for this will of the wisp known as the real me in all these places and in a lot more I'm not going to tell you about, uh, I was also looking in the contents of a bottle. And here I really did always find a key. Now, the door that this key opened was not the one that I was looking for. Because the door that this key opened was the door to a Pandora's box, and out of it came this irrational, unpredictable, destructive creature who scared everybody else to death, including herself. I believed that this was the real me. I believed that what came out of that bottle was it. My husband, who was enlightened about alcoholism, he, one of our many friends in New York who was working for a PhD at the same time Lee was, was doing his dissertation on understanding and counseling the alcoholic. And we used to spend hours listening to him talk about it. I mean, after all, I had a brother who was an alcoholic, and I had to learn all about this, you know. And so Lee really knew something about this. And I remember one day he said to me, you know, your brother's an alcoholic. He can't help himself, but you could. See, I believed that too. I believed I was just no good. That if I was any good, I could do something about it. I thought I was nothing. I thought I was a freak. Somebody asked me what characteristics I thought alcoholics had in common, and I said, in my experience, three things only. One is they can't handle booze successfully. Two is they deny that. And three is they mostly have low self-esteem. That's what I had. That's what we all had. I thought what came out of this bottle was me. I thought this was it. Now, the chaos and confusion that were created in all of our lives by this attempt of mine to live two lives, one on a more or less constructive plane and the other on this dark side, this just finally brought me to the point of despair where nothing seemed worth the effort anymore. The gap between this person who made attempts at worthwhile living and this creature who was so beset by obsessive and compulsive drinking that she poisoned and cooked over, kicked over every good thing she did, this just brought me to the point of despair where nothing seemed worth the effort. The gap between these two was too wide. I could not imagine that I would ever find a bridge wide enough to span it, and so I concluded I was just a no-good freak, a sort of typhoid Mary of the human race. You know, it had to be dramatic. It had to be the worst. It couldn't be just kind of bad. It had to be the worst. 
someone who'd had every opportunity that a person could be given and still couldn't make the scene. And it was in this black and defeated and burnt out frame of mind that I showed up at my first AA meeting. And I hadn't been going to AA meetings for very long before I found that key that I'd been looking for. And it didn't open all the doors right away. It still hasn't, and it never will. But it began what has been a process, which I hope will continue as long as I do, of opening one door at a time as I can become willing to look at what's inside. And I found the key that opened the first door when I was able to accept the fact that I was an alcoholic, when I was able to accept the fact that there was nothing that I or anyone could do to change that, but that I could change the meaning of it and take the destruction out of it by becoming a sober alcoholic one day at a time. Now I'm going to tell you about how I got to my first meeting because this is as close to a miracle as I'm likely to see in my life. When I came into AA and they told me, you know, you postponed taking the first drink, I already knew about that. I'd been postponing for years. I thought if I postponed it until I did the shopping and got dinner ready and tended to all the things I had to tend to, then I was on my own and that was my time I could do what I pleased. Now, I didn't succeed at this 100%. I don't want you to think anything like that, but I worked toward that. I understood that postponing could happen. And on the, <laughs> on the Friday before Labor Day, 1957, I was in my kitchen in the afternoon, about 4 o'clock, and I had postponed taking the drink as long as I could. So I poured one and I drank it, but almost with the very first sip, I was just overcome with a sort of sickening shock of recognition of the helplessness and hopelessness and the near despair of my situation. I hated what alcohol did to me. I had hated it a long time. And I really was so sick and tired of it. And then without a plan in my head or a thought, I got up and I walked to the telephone and I called my husband. And I said, please try not to be angry with me. I know I'll be drunk when you get home tonight. But I hope it may be the last time. And then out of the blue came the words that saved my life and changed it. I said, if you'll call AA and find out where their meetings are, I'm willing to try it. I said, I don't know whether I'm an alcoholic or not. I know if I am, it's not my fault, but it will be my fault if I don't try to do something about it. And it doesn't cost anything, so what have I got to lose? What did I have to lose? Only all those things I'd been struggling for years to get rid of. Things like anxiety and alienation and insecurity and terror, despair. And what did I have to find instead? I didn't know any of this. Right around the corner were some of the things I had been looking for in so many unlikely places. Things like faith and friendship and hope meaning and purpose in my life, but I didn't know any of this. My husband was in utter shock. He said, yeah, sure, I'll call him on the phone. <laughs> well, I tell you, I felt great. I had bit the bullet. I had told him that I would be drunk when he got home. So I really owed it to myself, I thought. <laughs> one last time <laughs> and I always say I got to AA by the grace of God and telephonitis because as soon as I had four drinks I started telephoning 
and I used to put notes on the telephone to myself saying, do not use this phone. <laughs> and I would have four drinks and I'd say, that's ridiculous. <laughs> the week before this had happened, exactly one week before this, the children's pediatrician and his wife, who were neighbors and friends, had come, up, come over to spend the evening with Lee and me. And I was drinking, but I wasn't drunk. And I was pouring for everybody. And I was talking to the pediatrician about a problem I was having with one of the children. Now, he knew me well. And he'd been with us on a number of occasions. And as I was pouring out all this grief to him, he said, wait a minute, I have to say something to you. I should have done it a long time ago, and it's going to make you furious. He said, you're not going to solve this problem. You're not going to solve any problem you've got unless you do something about the drinking. It's out of control. I want you to let me call Dr. Ruth Fox, who was a well-known psychiatrist in New York who worked with alcoholics, and I want you to go to see him. Well, I was just as mad as he thought I was going to be. But I wasn't mad at him. I was mad at Lee. I thought my husband had ratted on me. The man had a medical degree. You know, he had eyes, ears, nose. I don't know why I thought he couldn't figure this out. But at any rate, I said, thank you very much. No more money is going to be spent on me and my problems, and I'll have to find another way. And I got rid of him as fast as I could so I could tear into my husband and give him hell which I did for the whole week that followed. So much so that he said he started to call up Milton and ask Milton to put me in the hospital. Not because I was that sick, but because I was that dangerous, he felt. At any rate, after I made this phone call to my husband, I put the phone down and it rang and it was this doctor. He said, I want to know if you've been thinking about the conversation we had last week. What have you decided to do? I said, this is uncanny that you should call right at this moment. And I told him what I had just done. He said, you agreed to go to AA? And I said, why, yes. Don't you think I should? He said, it's the best thing you could possibly do, but I wouldn't have dared suggest it. Why won't they dare suggest it? You know, they still don't dare suggest it nearly enough. They suggest everything else first. <laughs> I said, I'm scared to go alone, Milton. Do you think it'd be too infantile if I asked Lee to go with me to the first meeting? He said, you ask him. If he doesn't want to go, you call me. I'll go. Just go. <laughs> so I hung up the phone, and then I began my little operation of enjoying the evening. <laughs> And then I began to telephone everybody I knew to tell them about my big news. <laughs> and not a single soul said, you don't need that. <laughs> they all thought it was a fine idea. Well, I was drunk as predicted when my husband got home, so there wasn't any meeting that night. And the next morning, as I was coming to I never woke up. I always came to as from under an anesthetic. I began to have second thoughts about this big decision that I had made. And the phone started ringing, and it rang all day long with all my friends calling up to remind me about what I had told them the night before because they knew I had a way of forgetting. So I said, oh, gee, thanks a heap. Well, it was the Labor Day weekend. I was expecting my sister and another friend for the weekend, and I had laid in heavy supplies. I knew enough about AA to know that you did not teach people how to drink, that the idea was you stop drinking. So I sat the whole weekend looking deprived and noble and tragic. <laughs> drinking water and Coca-Cola while they drank bourbon and scotch and gin. And the Tuesday after Labor Day, as my sister left the house, she said, Now, honey, 
you've got to find another way because none of us can stand you like this, I'm telling you. <laughs> so she left and I spent the rest of the day throwing up. And Lee called in a group office and they said there's a meeting at the old Manhattan group. The beginner's meeting begins at 7.30 and asked for a man named Charlie. I'll never forget how I felt when we walked out of the house that night. Oh. We walked out on the steps and I saw, mm, you have really done it now. You are really about to take a leap into the dark. Little did I know that that leap into the dark was going to be my leap of faith and that that darkness was going to turn out to be better than any light that I had ever known. But I was hurting then. I thought I was permanently broken in spirit. The only thing that was broken was my will. That was because it never had learned how to bend. I was sick with shame and humiliation. I didn't know what to expect. We got in a taxi cab. We got to the address they told us. It was in a part of New York that had not yet experienced urban renewal. <laughs> we walked up and down in front of that meeting and I thought to myself, what would my grandmother think if she could see me now? Well, I, there were plenty of other times I didn't ask myself that question when she wouldn't have thought too well of it either. I said to Lee, if I ever needed a drink in my life, I need a drink now. He said, let's go to the meeting. Then if you have to have a drink, we'll go get a drink. So we went and I looked at my hands like this the whole time. We sat around this table while the beginner's meeting was going on. And finally, the leader asked if there were any questions. And my husband asked a question. And he said to him, what's your particular monsoon hour, sir? And I said, He's not talking about himself. He's talking about me. And that was the beginning. And I had heard him say some things that night. I've been brilliant. The kinds of things you hear at AA meetings and that I still don't hear any place else. Things that make sense. Things that made me know he knew some things that applied to me that nobody else who had ever talked to me knew. He knew he'd been where I was. He said, being an alcoholic is like being pregnant. You can't be a little bit alcoholic anymore and you can be a little bit pregnant. That made sense to me. I had a brother who was an alcoholic. I didn't do like he did. So I thought I was only a little bit alcoholic. <laughs> but I realized it was just a question of degree I could get there. I don't think I would have believed any of these things if I'd read them in a book. But I believed what I saw in that room and what I heard. Because I believed that you had been where I was, that you had suffered what I was suffering, and that if this had worked for you, maybe it could work for me. You didn't tell me take two drinks and stop. But my husband said, try taking two drinks and stop. I was like a lion in a cage after two drinks. Gracious. You knew that. You never said take two drinks and stop. The wife of the man who was leading the beginner's meeting later became one of my closest friends. She was sitting on one side of me. We went down to the open meeting. She was sitting on one side of me and my husband on the other. And they had three speakers, all men, all with a Bowery story in the background. And this was making this lovely lady very nervous. She was fatty. And she was saying to me, most of the meetings aren't this rough. I hope you'll go to Lenox Hill tomorrow night. And, uh, and most of the time we have a woman speaker. And most of the stories are not this, not this heavy. And I smiled at her. And my husband said, uh, maybe I shouldn't have brought you here. You never did anything like this. Do you want to leave? And I said, why don't you shut up and let me listen to what they're saying? <laughs> he 
his jaw dropped. Not because I had been rude to him. I was rude to him regularly. He was used to that. <laughs> but he was so surprised that I didn't offer to break his legs for having brought me there. Now, this is no credit to me. This is absolutely the grace of God. Something had happened. He knew it. What was sitting beside him was something different from what came into that room that night. It was different. It really was different. By the grace of God, I had been able to suspend criticism and analysis and judgment and consequently to listen and maybe learn a little bit. The only thought that occurred to me was not that I don't belong here with these people. What I thought was, if these fellows can have been this sick, lost so much, had so little to get well for, if they could do it, surely I can. I had never thought I could do anything before. Now I felt like maybe I could. And this began this process of AA becoming a school for me. And it still is. Where I have learned the things that I've really always wanted to know, and I'm still learning things about how to lead a life that has some meaning and some purpose and that's useful to somebody else, even useful to me sometimes. And in all of this, I found the incentive from the example of people like you, and I found the courage from your experience. You showed me the difference between slavery and freedom. I owe you everything, everything. No way can I ever find the words to give thanks for what AA has done for me. There aren't any words. So I've had to try to give at least partial evidence of my gratitude through love and service to this fellowship and to the people in it who have made this big difference in my life, who made my life possible. Many years ago, 1974, I think it was, my husband and I were in the car, and we were going to Jackie Robinson's funeral, the famous Brooklyn Dodger baseball player. And when we were driving up there, we began to reminisce. And my husband said, there's no question that we lost a lot as a result of your drinking. But we gained so much more from your being in AA than we ever lost from your drinking that it was worth the whole experience. You can't say much more than that, I don't think. Now, I'm going to tell you one story and then I'm going to sit down. I was invited to <laughs> speak at an anniversary up in Marble Hill in the Bronx many years ago. And the hour got late, and I thought I better quit talking and sit down, and I didn't tell the story. And the man who had asked me came up and grabbed me by the throat and said, You didn't tell about the dinner party. That's the only reason I asked you. <laughs> in case that's the only reason you asked me, I'm going to tell you about the dinner party. <laughs> My husband was an Episcopal clergyman. He was also the chairman of the Department of Religion at New York University. And about two years before I came into AA, he asked me if I'd have a dinner party for the faculty and staff from NYU. And I, of course, gladly consented to do this. And I worked very hard to make this party a success. And in the middle of the afternoon, I was all through my chores and I was tired. I thought it would be a good idea to take a little nap before the company came. And then I had one of those inspirations that occur with some frequency to alcoholics. <laughs> I thought, maybe if I have a little glass of sherry, it'll help me become drowsy. <clears throat> now, I knew a little glass of sherry did not make me drowsy, that it took a little bottle of sherry to make me drowsy. I also was one of the alcoholics who knew long before AA that it was the first drink that got me into all the trouble. But I still didn't know how you stayed away from the first drink. I still thought you could apply reason 
So I applied reason. I said, any fool would know enough to be discreet at a time like this. And I took the first drink. <laughs> well, I didn't have the luck to pass out. I never did. I didn't have the sense to leave home. I never did do that either. I showed up at this party almost falling down drunk, near hysterics as I always was when I drank, muttering a stream of what I hope was incomprehensible gibberish. I say this with feeling because what I had to say was highly uncomplimentary to my husband and was not expressed in the language that most people associate with a clergyman's wife. (laughs) Now the people at this party were strangers to me. We're Episcopalians. And Episcopalians take a sort of relaxed attitude towards drinking, social drinking. They weren't relaxed with me because they didn't think my drinking was very social. (laughs) But most of these people came from a temperance-type background. Most of them didn't even smoke. These are the kinds of people that I call squares. And I called them that at the top of my lungs all evening. You talk about arrogance. Here I was, the boss's wife, the clergyman's wife, the hostess, drunk and disorderly. And I had the nerve to refer to these people in what I really intended to be insulting terms. Well, the day after this party, my remorse was really spectacular. (laughs) I never wanted to see the light of day again. I wanted to find a hole and crawl into it with the rest of the rats because that's where I belonged. I was not able to tell my poor husband that I had disgraced and humiliated that I was sorry. I thought he ought to know I was sorry, that nobody would behave this way if she could help herself. I don't know whether he knew that or not. But he did know after that that I didn't no longer drink because I had unresolved personality problems. <laughs> I drank because drinking had become my number one problem. Now you might imagine that in my life and circumstances a performance like this would constitute a bottom. But I didn't come to that conclusion. I decided that something needed to be done about the drinking, and I set out to do something with indifferent success, but I don't recommend my system to anyone who hadn't already tried it, because I learned some new things about loneliness. I thought I knew what it was to be lonely, and the fact that I didn't have any good reason to be lonely with a wonderful husband and two marvelous children and what could have been a really interesting life. The fact that I had these things and still felt as though I would die of loneliness just reinforced my feelings of inadequacy and convinced me that I was a freak. But after this party, the loneliness became a really morbid thing because I decided that I wouldn't do any drinking at all when other people were around. And before long, I, who had been and am now a gregarious kind of person, didn't want to be around people anymore. I didn't care whether my husband sat and talked with me in the evening after the children went to bed. I said, why don't you go on back to your study and play on your typewriter? And when I die, I don't have anybody play the organ, let them play the typewriter. That's all I ever hear. (laughs) I didn't want to make plans to do things with the children in the evenings or over the weekends. I just wanted everybody to get the hell out and leave me alone to drink in peace. Only, of course, there wasn't any peace. Because there isn't any peace in solitary confinement, and that's what Boozy done to me. I was a lost soul in chains. 
My chains may have been made out of crepe paper, but it's been my experience that these are the most difficult ones to break. Now, thanks to AA, I no longer feel like a lost soul, and I'm not in chains any longer. I have a choice. I can take one drink with all its consequences, or I can do it the AA way and stay away from one drink for one day. I remember a few years ago, it was a good while ago, I went through a really discouraged period and it seemed to me that everything I did was working the wrong way and I was making progress backwards and I began to slam the doors and kick the furniture and mutter curses under my breath and I remember saying to myself, what's so different about your life anyway? Have you sold yourself a bill of goods? What's so different except that you're sober? Except that I'm sober. That's the only thing in the world I came here looking for was sobriety. The only thing I even hoped to find. Everything else. Everything. And there's been so much that my cup runs over. I learned what it was to be a friend and to have a friend. And to be able to look at that person and see that person. And not just my own image reflected there. I found new happiness in the well-being and companionship of my husband and children. I found new joy in the practice of my religion. I finally had a job which I dearly loved, and all of this is gravy, because all I was looking for was sobriety. And if I want to know what it would be like to lose it, I only have to remember those last two years when I drank alone late at night wandering through the halls and up and down the steps of my house, always going for that one last drink. And I remember saying to myself even then, there must be some purpose in this. This must be leading somewhere. I must be looking for something that's missing from my life. And even in my drunken confusion, I was right about that. I was looking for something. I was looking for AA. I was looking for all of you. I was looking for the power greater than myself that I call God. I'm not proud of these stories I've told you. None of us is proud. I spent years trying to forget these things. But I know now that I must not ever forget. Lest I forget to be grateful to God for helping me to find AA. Lest I forget to be grateful to AA for helping me to find my life. Thank you.